My name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Um, let me just add my welcome to the one I hope you just received. So glad to be worshiping uh, with you this morning. It's my privilege uh, to open uh, God's Word with you today. And we find ourselves in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 18 today, and I'll be reading uh, the first 16 verses. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18, and the scripture text will also be uh, up on the screen. Just a little bit of context. David has just defeated Goliath. So coming off of this great victory, and we're going to see how two rivals responded to David, how Jonathan responded to David's victory, and how Saul responded to David's victory. First Samuel 18, this is God's word. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women began, uh, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. This is the song they sang Saul has struck down his thousands, and David. His ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. 
So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you be with us today by your Spirit, and would you reveal to us uh, the love of Jonathan? That's a beautiful passage. Would you keep us from the envy of Saul? Jealousy can, oh, a root of bitterness can grow up into our hearts and become something crazy, can take over the garden of our life, and we don't want that, Lord. And so by your spirit, would you tend to our hearts this morning, and would you draw us to your son, Jesus? We pray this in your name, amen, amen. So I'm going to title the sermon a different title than in your bulletin. The sermon's new title is, How Are You Going to Handle Your Davids? How are you going to handle your Davids? David is coming off of this great victory. Um, He's just defeated the giant Goliath. And we see two very different responses to David's victory. We see Saul, jealous, envy, filled with envy, raving. He's terrible at throwing a spear. He throws it twice and he doesn't get David. Uh, He is overcome, overtaken, possessed by jealousy. David didn't bring insecurity to Saul. He exposed the insecurity in Saul. In the presence of someone's gift and goodness, it exposed how small Saul felt on the inside. But David's goodness and victory brought out something different in Jonathan, didn't it? It brought out love. It brought out love, commitment, admiration, appreciation. Perhaps what the Bible is saying by contrasting these two responses to David is that one of the true tests of our spiritual maturity is how you handle people who are more gifted than you. It's a lesson that's important to learn because there's always somebody better. There's always a church that's better, a preacher that's better. There is always someone who is more swole, more talented, more this, more that. There's always someone who can sing better. When you come into somebody who is more gifted than you or who has more success at that time, in those moments, the true state of your heart will be exposed. 
And we will either be cut open, and what we will find is a green-eyed monster, jealousy and envy in the crevice of our hearts. Jealousy taking advantage of this lethal insecurity. Or we might find contentment. A a growing appreciation for someone else. A deepening appreciation for what God has done for us. It's a test of spiritual maturity. How will you handle your David's? By God's mercy, we all have a little bit of Jonathan in us, I think. But darn it if we don't recognize the Saul part. And so this contrast is put in front of us to not only to expose, but I think to heal. To reveal the balm that can be applied to the envy in our hearts when we feel the fires of jealousy kindled. And you will. The issue is not whether feelings of jealousy or envy will come up, but it's how do we deal with them when they do. And I think that's what the contrast here is meant to teach us. How will you handle your jealousy? And the first thing I think we learn as we look at this is we learn to fight comparison with contentment. We learn to fight comparison with contentment. Or you might say it like this. When you are content, you won't compare. We'll return to Jonathan at the end, but I want to begin with Saul. Looking at verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned home from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And then there's that line, And Saul eyed David from that day on. So this is after, uh, immediately after, uh, Goliath was killed. And after this great victory over the Philistines, the women and the children of the surrounding villages come out to meet uh, the returning army, as well as King Saul and the hero David, and they bring their tambourines and lutes and flutes, and they sing their songs of victory, as would have been their custom. Now, Saul is leading, and there's this army behind him. And there is David, but Saul is king. And they go out to greet Saul. And they sing a song. And it's uh, it's a humdinger. It's a great song. I thought about coming up with a melody for the song. But it wasn't very good, so I'm not going to sing it. 
But the first verse of the song is this. Saul has killed his thousands. And you can imagine Saul thinking at that point, this is a good song. That's a pretty good song. His chest gets puffed out. He's the king. Saul has killed his thousands. That's a right good number. He liked that part. But then they kept singing. And the second verse was, And David, his ten thousands. And at that point, he wanted to turn that radio straight off. But he couldn't because they were singing the song. And you can imagine um, he's hearing in his mind just applause to David. And that caused Saul some problems. And he began to compare himself to David. Now it's important to recognize that the women of Israel weren't trying to throw shade at Saul. It's just a rule in Hebrew poetry because of the parallelism that when you use a number in one verse, you usually want to amplify it in the second verse and usually by a multiple of ten. So the Lord protected me by a thousand chariots, by ten thousand angelic hosts he protected me. That's my own Hebrew poetry. That sounded good. I can do that stuff. And so the, what they were saying is Saul and his, his main man killed a lot of Philistines. They had a great victory. Ten thousands. But what Saul hears is, oh, they're overinflating his numbers. David, and he, here's the thing. He, didn't kill, he killed one guy. He's a big guy. But it just gets into Saul's head. He, he becomes immature and focused on these numbers. And he gets so focused on verse 2 that he doesn't even think about verse 1. Because Saul had killed his thousands. Thousand is a lot. But he becomes so fixated on what they say about David that they can't, he can't even appreciate what they're actually saying or what they're saying about him. And that can be our struggle. We can get so fixated on the second verse that we don't thank God for the first verse. We get so caught up in what somebody else has that we don't take the time to pause and say, Lord, thank you for the 1,000 you have given me victory over. I know it's easy to think about someone else. It's easy to look at what someone else has. But what I want to suggest today that what we're being asked in this text is to consider, is to begin to thank God. When we feel jealousy come up in our heart, the first thing we do is we begin to thank God for what we have. I know they have a nice car. But Lord, thank you for the car I've got. Oh man, they have a better job. But Lord, I have a, thank you for the job I've got. Man, they have a picture-perfect family, or at least it seems like they do. 
Lord, thank you for the relationships I have, for the children I have. Sometimes you have to thank the Lord for the 1,000 that you have. It's a sign of contentment. Because listen, none of it is deserved. Truth be told, whether it's 10,000 or 1,000, it's God that did it all in the first place. So you don't, so what, the, the heart, the contented heart says, I don't even have time to, to be upset with you. I'm just glad for what God has done in my life. I'm just grateful for the 1,000 that God has given me. So the simple question is, when is the last time you celebrated your thousand? When was the last time you lingered over what you did have? When you appreciated what God has done in your life? And when you let your thoughts linger there and then lead you to Christ, to what you have in Christ, then you're cooking with gas. Now you are saying, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Let me bless your holy name for my thousands. God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. To regard our lives as diminished in comparison to our neighbor's life is to despise the God who gave us our lives as they are. It is to doubt his wisdom. It is to forget his provision. But on the other hand, we make much of God when we accept everything we have trustingly and gratefully from his hand. Look at all that we have and all of it undeserved. So that's the first thing. We fight comparison with contentment. It's what Saul didn't do. Here's the second thing, are you ready? We soberly acknowledge what jealousy can become if it's left untended. That's a long one. We soberly acknowledge what jealousy can become if it's left untended. Verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Now this is an interesting and weird little section of scripture. And it actually references back to a section that we did not teach on in 1 Samuel 16. 
when after the Lord's judgment of Saul, he tells him he's going to take the kingdom away from him. He's going to anoint one of his neighbors who is better than him to become king. And it says that at that point, the Holy Spirit departs from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord comes to torment him. Um, And then David is actually called in to soothe Saul whenever he gets into one of these moods because David is a pretty good musician. And so day by day, David is in the court with Saul playing his music, calming Saul's evil moods. Here we find that the harmful spirit is back, but there's no soothing it. Whatever is happening here with this harmful spirit, is, it's begun to take over Saul's life. What began as like a weed in the garden of Saul's soul is taken over like wild onions. Have you ever tried to get rid of wild onions in your yard? I have wild onions. I still have them. Six years, my battle against the wild onions, and they are victorious. They have slayed their tens of thousands. (laughs) But what's up with the spirit, the harmful spirit? Is it an entity? Some theologians and commentators think so. That's what has been sent to to Saul, is uh, an evil spirit. And some of your translations will have evil spirit. The word harmful there is just the word bad in Hebrew. It's just a bad spirit. And the word spirit can stand for anything in the Hebrew language from an entity to a bad mood. So are we talking about a demon? Or are we talking about a bad mood, a harmful mood. Well, I'll just give you my take. I don't think that it was a demon possessing Saul like we see demons possess people in the movies. In the same way, I don't think this is Saul just having a bad day. This seems to be a bad day on steroids. And whatever is happening here, it says that it's from God, that God is somehow active, a participant in what's happening to Saul. But Saul was jealous and angry before the spirit came. So did the spirit cause the anger? The anger was already there, and so was the jealousy. Was Saul raving because of his heart or because of the spirit? My answer is this, that the Bible's vision of human evil is pretty nuanced. And the Bible says you can't explain evil simply as something that resides inside the human heart and works itself out. There is also supernatural evil on the outside that's always trying to find its way in that wants to find and exploit the broken elements of our lives. To take 
the jealousy, anger that's there and to turn it up a few notches to 10. There is natural and supernatural brokenness. And it seems that the more that Saul gives himself into envy and anger and murder and hatred, the more that he becomes subject to the forces of evil outside of him that are working to amplify that anger, envy, murder, and hatred. In James chapter 3, it says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's not to say that every instance or any instance of jealousy is a demon inside of you. But James is trying to say that there are forces there trying to exploit our greed, our anger, our selfish ambition, and our jealousy. So my take is that God isn't causing Saul's jealousy. Saul has been insecure and jealous and angry for as long as we've known him. But he's no longer working in Saul's life to restrain it. His spirit, which is his enabling power, is no longer present in Saul's life. Saul, time and time again, has hardened his heart, has refused God's mercy, has gone his own way, has chosen the path of insecurity and jealousy, and now the Lord is giving him over to it. It reminds me of what had happened to Pharaoh when time and time again the Pharaoh hardened his heart to the Lord until finally it says the Lord hardened his heart, giving him over to what he wanted so much in the first place. It's a portrait of what can happen to our sin when it is untended to. At first you have a little bit of control over it. But as you let it linger in your life, what was a trickle becomes a stream and then a raging river until this thing can dominate you and take over your life. First you have envy, and then after a while, envy has you. You have greed, but then after a while, greed has you. You were angry, but then after a while, anger has you. And the anger that he has and the envy that he has eventually takes control over him. So that there's no Saul left. There's just this anger, envious spirit that remains. It reminds me of a sobering passage from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Let me just read it to you. Lewis says, Christianity asserts that we're going to go on forever. 
Now, there are a great many things that wouldn't be worth bothering about if I was only going to live 80 years or so. But I had better bother about it if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse, so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. And then he says this, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself or wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it. But just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. He says it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. This was an outworking of the envy and insecurity and hatred and fear that had gone left unchecked in Saul for so long. And now it seems like it's going to go on forever like a machine. It's pretty petty and horrific. So what's the takeaway? (laughs) I think we all know what it feels like to have something possess us. A feeling or a moment. Whether it's lust or anger or jealousy, we can even prepare ourselves a whole day to be like, I am not going to blow up at this person. I am not going to blow up at this person. When they say this, which they'll say, this is not what I'm going to do. I am not going to do this. I'm going to do that. This, no. That, yes. And what do you do? This thing over here. Like the moment you do it. You have prayed. You are there. You have prepared yourself. And you just blow up. And you do the thing. And what do you do an hour later? You just say, That didn't even feel like me. What was that? That was like a power beyond myself. We all have this stuff inside of us. And when you do it, what you think, what you should think is, I'm capable of more and worse than I could ever imagine. And it leaves us wondering, what would I become if God wasn't in my life? If I didn't tend to this. And it's an opportunity to be sobered. And to bring that thing to Jesus, to speak to it, about it to a friend, to let the Lord's love and forgiveness tend to these areas of our heart that are so broken. And so we fight jealousy by, with contentment, we sober ourselves with what These things can become in our life if untended to, if left untended. And then finally, we embrace true love. 
Let's look at Jonathan's response to David. It is so different from his father. There could be no sharper contrast. Verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of, of, of David. Let me start over again. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. It's important to see what's happening here. Jonathan is the crowned prince. He is next in line for the kingdom. The throne is his throne by right. But he has just witnessed what's in David's heart. He has seen David's great faith. And he has seen and witnessed that God is with David in a very significant way. And what he says is this is the king. This is who deserves to be on the throne. And what he does here is he abdicates. Everywhere in the Bible, clothing is a sign of status. It's a sign of dignity. It's a sign of inheritance. And that's why Joseph's brothers got so jealous at the coat. It wasn't because Joseph was so stylish. It's because it represented what was coming to him. His inheritance. This unique status and standing that he had in his father's eyes. This is why when the prodigal son comes home, he gets not only sandals, which is a symbol of freedom, and not only a ring, which is a symbol of authority, but he gives him clean robes. And it's not just because he wants him to have clean garments. He's restoring the son to this place of status and honor. He's being brought back and being given his, his inheritance. Saying you are now a rightful heir. And this is why when depictions of heaven are given, we're always wearing robes. It's not that we're at a spa you know, and you have this robot, it's that we have status in the Father's eyes. We have this great heavenly inheritance. And so what is Jonathan doing? Rather than seeing David as a threat and trying to tear him down, he lifts him up at his own expense. Jonathan sees someone who will one day be king and he gives everything to invest in him. Instead of coveting the kingship, Jonathan gives up his own claim to kingship, conveying to David the crown prince's right to the throne to make David into a king. What Jonathan does by taking off his robe and giving it to David is he performs a coronation, he decreases. So that David 
can increase. And it says that this was an act of true love. That he loved David as he loved himself. Whatever happens when envy enters into a relationship, it always makes that relationship about competition and comparison. I can only be king if you are not king. I can only be king if you are vanquished. It's a zero-sum game with jealousy. It's you or me. I am happy and awesome, or you are happy and awesome, but they can't be together. But in Jonathan, we see something different. Jonathan is so committed to the success of David, to his flourishing, his joy, his future, his happiness. He's willing to lay everything down for David. He's willing to surrender his own right to the throne so that David could have the throne. Envy is when we say it's either my happiness or your happiness, either my success or your success. But what love says is It's my success in your success. It's my joy in your joy. To love someone as yourself. To find your joy in someone else's exaltation. Love is when you invest your joy into the joy of another so that their joy is your joy. It's very beautiful to think about, Jonathan. It can inspire you, and it can melt your heart. But the thing that will change your heart is knowing that this is the way that Christ has loved you. Because there is a greater Jonathan. There has been a greater abdication And there has been a coronation. And it's yours. And unlike Jonathan, who was merely a crowned prince, this greater Jonathan was the king of all creation. And unlike Jonathan, who would only remove his robe, this greater thought Jonathan would be utterly stripped of all of his clothing, disinherited. Stripped bare on the cross. And unlike Jonathan, who gave up his cloak for someone worthy to be king, Jesus, the true Jonathan, gave it up and was stripped bare for those who were unworthy and undeserving. They were just meager, lowly servants. Why would Jesus do such a thing? Because he finds his joy in your joy. Because he finds his greatest joy in your joy. In lifting you up. In your coronation. And so he's given you a king's inheritance. (laughs) 
He gave up his robes to give us robes of righteousness. And he did it to break the power of envy. He came down from the throne to give us the throne. He is the ultimate Jonathan who has bound his soul to ours and made a covenant with us. And he has loved us as he loved himself and put his happiness and joy in our happiness. For the joy set before him. My goodness. And so what do we do? What do we do when jealousy comes to mess with us? The first thing that we do is we don't treat it like a small thing. We recognize that if it becomes untended to, there are supernatural bullies in this world who will take that jealousy and they'll use it to take all of our lunch money. But then, what do we do when we feel it? We don't go to fear. We go to love. We go to the way that God has loved us in Jesus. And we see our thousands and our tens of thousands and our hundreds of thousands. A heavenly inheritance held in heaven for us that will not spoil or fade And we let it lead us to love. To look at other people and to love them as God has loved us. To pray that we would find our joy, not in self-protection, but in looking at other people and saying, I I see that you are worth so much. I just want to find my joy in seeing you succeed, in raising you up. The goal is not that we would just fight jealousy, but that we would be people full of love. What are you going to do with your Davids? How are you going to handle them? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for 1 Samuel chapter 18. Thank you that in it we get a picture of your love for us in Jonathan. One that can break the power of envy in our hearts. Um, when we sense what you have done for us in Jesus, it's, it can be as powerful as an exorcism that can call from our lives that petty and grumbling spirit that is a thief of our joy and that keeps us from true love. When we see all that you've done for us and all of it undeserved, It is to move our hearts, to melt and change us. And I pray that it would, that it would make us a people of love. And so would there be a deep abiding contentment in all that we have, in all that we have been given? Would there always be a willingness to fight sin, envy, and jealousy? And would you enable us to love deeply and well, to receive your love, and then to be conduits of it for others. We give you praise and thanks this day. In Christ's name, amen.